We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This season, all your favorites have one home for the holidays. Yours with Disney+. Plus. Merry Christmas! Moana, Woody, Buzz, Captain Marvel, Darth Vader, and Homer will all be there, so make room. Make Disney Plus your home for the holidays. Streaming Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Nat Geo, and 30 seasons of The Simpsons. That's something to celebrate. Merry Christmas to you! All these and more now streaming. Go to DisneyPlus.com to sign up now. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to take a spirit animal quiz online. Please be the cheetah. Please be the cheetah. And learn your animal isn't the cheetah, but the far less appealing blobfish. Oh, come on. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 blobfish minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. Hey everybody, Dan here with the Rare Preamble. This is our Dutch special that Mike Miller and I recorded all the way back in the January transfer window when Frankie de Jong signed with the club. Uh, and we've been putting it in our back pocket. And for those who were listening to the show last week, uh, I am still away. I am still recovering. But I'll be back with some pretty new content in the coming weeks. Again, don't go anywhere on this show. But in the meantime, please enjoy. These are all the players that have played for FC Barcelona of Dutch heritage. Uh, we've got a few names at the end of the show coaches, Femity players, and ones that need a little bit more time as well. So these are really just the jugadores that played for FC Barcelona. Please enjoy. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, unmissable opinions brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. I'm Dan Hilton, joined by guest co-host Mike Miller for another special edition of the Barcelona Podcast, inspired by Frankie de Jong signing with Barcelona. We are talking the Dutch influence on the Blaugrana, and there are a lot of names here, and all of them are worth talking about. Mike, you ready for this? I was born ready. (laughs) Good. This history, though, I think starts before either you or I were even alive. It starts all the way back in the early 70s. Uh, Rhinus Michaels coming from Ajax in 1971 to manage Barcelona. As the innovator of total football and utilizing the offside trap, his move to Barcelona, it was a huge get for the club as he was coming off a win with Ajax at the European Cup. You fast forward to 1973, that's when, you know, I guess our story really begins when Johan Cruyff comes and things really start clicking. Then 
for Michaels. He would leave the following year in 1974 to become the manager of the Dutch Nationals team. And it was the 1974 World Cup where, as they were nicknamed, Clockwork Orange really showed what total, total football was capable of. And while he wouldn't win until the 1988 European Cup with the Netherlands, it was Michael's ideas that obviously the foundation of Cruyff's thinking, It's just where the connection between the two clubs begins. And then Michael's also returned to manage from 1976 to 1978, which leads us right into talking about our first guy here, Johan Cruyff, 1973 to 78 as a player, 1990 to 1996 as a manager. And, you know, Mike, I guess the initial thoughts here about starting with Cruyff, you know, we'd love to go an hour on Cruyff, but I think maybe he deserves his own show sometimes. Michael's sometime down the road deserves his own show, but we are having a Dutch player special. So we've got 20 plus, and I say plus because we got some add-ons at the end. We've got 20 players that played for the first team of FC Barcelona that we have to go through, uh, and 19, not counting Frankie de Jong. So we start with Johan Cruyff, and obviously he changed the course of the history of the club of Barcelona, Mike. Exactly, and uh, the arrival of Johan Cruyff really gave a second a second stream a second life i would say to the club because it hadn't seen a la liga title since uh 1960 or 1961 it hadn't really uh, it hadn't really won much it was really struggling in terms of uh asserting dominant dominance not only in spain but in europe as well so the arrival of johan cruyff really gave uh, not only hope but results to that uh, to, to that Barcelona squad and to the millions of fans following that club, not only from his amazing talent but the way that he commanded himself in and out of the field, the way that he embodied the values of FC Barcelona inside and outside of the pitch. And later on, later in his life, he proved to be much more than just a superstar for Barcelona, he actually uh, came back and did much more probably uh, as a manager than he ever did as a player. And that's not that's not saying that's not a knock on his player career at all, but just to just to show the impact that this personality had on this club, it's just uh, it goes beyond words. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his time as a manager is again what has changed the course of history moving forward for the club. But his time as a player, again, this is where our story starts with the connection between the Dutch players and Barcelona. And, you know, it was till 1973 before a player from the Netherlands had come to Barcelona. And this is even coming, if you think that the Frankie de Jong saga with Ajax, you know, it took forever. It had all the ups and downs of, you know, modern transfer saga drama. But yet, back in the early 70s, that talk between Barcelona and Ajax for Cruyff's signature as a player came after lengthy negotiations. It took a long time to kind of sort all that out. And, you know, thank goodness they did 231 games, 86 goals, won the Liga and won King's Cup. The Liga title that they won in 74 right after he arrived was their first legal title in 14 years. And, you know, obviously the manager four straight La Liga titles as manager and then the European Cup at Wembley. That's, we'll talk about, again, other guys in this list feature in that story. But a lot of great moments as well for him. The goal against Atletico Madrid where he's flying through the air. You know, that's not that's not why they call him the Flying Dutchman, but he was the Flying Dutchman. That was his nickname. Uh, plus the 5 nothing win over Madrid in 1974. Those are some of the big highlights of him as a player. But, you know, he was uh, obviously, you know, at, at the top of his game. He was probably at the time, you'd say... You can argue Paulinho Alcantara back in the day, back in the, you know, the 20s. But, uh, you know, this was a, a time 
other than the guy we talked about in Hungarian player special in Kubala, who had probably an argument to be the best player in the world at the time when he was there. But again, Stefano might have an argument. This was a time when Cruyff came to the club that I think you would say that unless you were, you know, you were diehard about the end of Beckenbauer's career, Cruyff was the best player in the world. And Barcelona captured the best player in the world with his signature. And that's really what starts all this off. And then, you know, uh, it's again, what can you more can you say about him that, you know, we can fit into a little podcast here? Because we've still got 18 names to go, Mike. (laughs) <laughs> exactly and uh by the way that 1974 se- uh, year i mean calendar year he was the best player in the world according to not only millions of fans adoring fc barcelona but he was also awarded the ballon d'or yeah yep so i mean if if it wasn't that <laughs> it wasn't an argument and this was you know we're not gonna talk about the merit of the ballon d'or on this show but back <laughs> then you know, it was it was almost unequivocally seen as the guy who was who was making waves. Okay, so our next guy up, uh, Johan Niskins. This is a direct correlation with Cruyff after Cruyff, uh, who also winds up leaving for America to go to Los Angeles Aztecs. That's something about Cruyff that not everyone again might remember. But Niskins, before he leaves for the New York Cosmos, he plays 233 games, 54 goals for the fellow Ajax player who comes in 1974. Uh, to 1979, so following Cruyff, but also stays at the club longer than Cruyff. Um, One Copa del Rey, one European Winners' Cup in 78-79, known for his heading ability, his high motor, and his free kicks. Uh, and uh, and he even returned as an assistant manager as Frank as Frank Reichard's number two years and years later, obviously. But he was another guy that he wasn't just a sidekick to Johan Cruyff. He had his own position and he bossed that midfield. Exactly, and uh, talking about total football and that incredible Ajax uh, side of the early 70s, as well as uh, Rinas Michel's uh, Barcelona squad, what is particular about Johan Niskins is that he is what I like to call the first ever modern-day number six. Mm. He is the first known player to be deployed as a deep-line playmaker, in front of the of the defensive line, but creating uh, plays out of the back, and he embodied that role so well, and he was so influential that many managers started started uh, molding uh, players to 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 look like Johan Niskins, and he had such an influence on the game. Uh, but unfortunately. That position is not the sexiest. <laughs> People mm-hmm. like to remember Cruyff because of his uh, physical prowess and his uh, incredible talent. But from a tactical standpoint, uh, I would say that Johan Iskins might have been the centerpiece of the Rinus Mitchell's puzzle. Yeah. Yeah, and if, again, he's number six. And not only did he endear himself to the fans at the time, but it was even afterwards when his legacy at the Camp Nou was really remembered. They, they say the crowds used to chant his name even after he had left the club, where they would just chant, knee skins, knee skins, knee skins. Again, this is after he's now gone to the New York Cosmos to join that star-studded lineup with Pele and uh, Georgie Canales and all those. But uh, So if he's the, uh, a number six, the next guy we're going to talk about, it's hard to almost quantify what position he was. He's a center back. It's Ronald Coleman, comes in 1989, so a little bit of a break between... Niskin's leaving in 79. It's 10 years later when Coleman shows up, stays at the club till 1995. Obviously, he's done some managing since then. Most people today know him as a player 
and also as a current manager of the Dutch national team, which I think is something he definitely deserves. And for all the pipeline of Ajax, Komen winds up being the first guy coming from other than Feyenoord, the other big club in the Netherlands, and that is PSV. And then Komen leaves for said Feyenoord later in 1995. Plays 350 games for Barcelona's first team. That's second of all the players that we're going to be having on our list. 106 goals in six years. And again, his big moment scoring for uh, against Sampdoria in the European final. He won more major titles at Barcelona than any Dutch player. Uh, and the man nicknamed Tintin was a master of free kicks. Struck the, power, the ball with, I mean, other than Roberto Carlos, I, I can't think of a guy that hit it that hard as well. And he did plenty of winning. Four La Liga titles, one European Cup, one European Super Cup, one Copa del Rey. Three Spanish Super Cups and two Copa Generalitats in 91 and 93. And Coleman, he was a center back. Uh, obviously, he was a big body. But, I mean, have we ever seen a center back who could score like Coleman and put up the goal scoring? Again, 106 goals in six years is absolutely incredible. And he, I mean, he's a guy that because he was, you know, molded basically in the image of his manager, that being Cruyff, that, I mean, Coleman, you could say that as a player, he was a guy that set this club in a different direction. Of course, and uh, you're talking about his goal scoring. He had a thunderous uh, free kick uh, in the 1993-1994 Champions League where Barcelona lost in the final against AC Milan. He was actually the lead, the leading scorer of that tournament as a central defender. Mm-hmm. And until very recently when Lionel Messi beat his record... He was the record holder for most goals scored in direct free kicks in the history of La Liga. Apart from that, the the, the thing that is particular about uh, Ronald Koeman is that he's your ultimate total football type player. He comes from that from that mindset, from that generation, from that mentality of football in which you're supposed to be good at uh, every single position except goalkeeper. Yeah. Right. No matter how. No matter. How we need to uh, to, to to use you? We're supposed uh, if you get on that field, you're supposed to fill that role and excel at it. And that's what we got from uh, from Ronald Koeman. And there there seems to be a new breed uh, of that generation. We'll cover that later in the show. But we hadn't seen that in a very long time, and we hadn't really seen that since Ronald Koeman, someone who could play. Uh, as a uh, as a wing back, as a central defender, as a central defensive midfielder, someone who could score, he was absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, he was again a, a, a trendsetter at the time, and also his acumen, the leadership he brought, uh, it, it's very Puyol esque. And so having him sign off again, the reason that we, you know, we really put this show forward was Frankie De Young signing, and so uh, to have Col- Coleman had you know signed off on that and saying that you know this is a guy that. You know, I, he uses him and utilizes him well in the Dutch national team. And as they've had their renaissance, he's a guy that hasn't had the best managing career so far. But and now at the international level, I'm really excited to see what he's able to do moving forward. Mike, who's next up on the list? Next on the list is Richard Wichke. And uh, Richard Wichke was uh, a midfielder. And he didn't really shine during his time with uh, Barcelona. He was there... From 91 to 93, but th- that transfer seemed to be a transfer of complacence to kind of a kind of a favor to to, to the Ajax more than anything because mm-hmm. he really didn't feature all that much. First of all, the Bosman ruling was really going up against him, and there were already three uh, 
more talented or more uh, irreplaceable. Yeah, higher profile. Yeah, high profile guys. Yeah, certainly. I mean, we go back to the, the season before that with with Michael Laudrup when you know he's a guy that winds up not starting uh, the European final just simply because they had too many guys that had to get on the field. Romario and Coleman obviously was one of those as well. And so you know, which guy winds up being a guy that again. There aren't many footnotes on this list, but we're not going to waste too much time because he, of this list, kind of is that footnote that it kept Dutch players into the squad, and obviously that's where Cruyff was looking, comes from Ajax, leaves for Bordeaux after just a few years, never really fit in properly, um, got got a few appearances, came in a lot of time as a sub, uh, but I don't think he's remembered necessarily as a bad player, just as somebody that, again, you might not necessarily remember uh, years down the line. Exactly. <laughs> So the next guy up, uh, uh, speaking of favors, it might feel like Jordi Cruyff was only there because of dad, Johan. But, uh, you know, the more digging you do into it, you realize that the guy, he was only there from 94 to 96, was the son of Johan Cruyff. He debuted under his father, so it feels like nepotism, but he came from Barcelona B as the top scorer for Barcelona B in 1992. And he was one of the next talents. He was one of the top talents in La Masia when he was called up. An attacking midfielder who could also play off the striker, basically as a secondary striker. Um, he and he played his role. He wasn't a starter. He usually played as a substitute. And as a substitute, he was one of the top scorers alongside Stoikov and Coleman as the team finished fourth in 94-95. He winds up with 54 appearances and 11 goals in total in his two seasons, winning just the Spanish Super Cup in 1994. That winds up being decided before he leaves for Man United. And Jordi Cruyff, again, since Johan has passed on in particular, Jordi not only has a good relationship with Barcelona. He was, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, obviously, or when I release it, it might be weeks or months after this happened, but uh, you know, Jordi Cruyff was just putting picture that he was at the Camp Nou for their comeback against Sevilla this season in the Copa del Rey. Um, and, and for Jordi Cruyff, again, I think there's some sentimentality to it. You feel good about you know having him in the history, and I wouldn't consider his time at Barcelona a failure because, again, he, he was expected to be Johan Cruyff as a player. He was obviously never going to be that, but you know, he still carved out a little piece of history for himself as a player. Exactly. And uh, he had a, what I like to call an, a decent career. The, the the clubs that he played at were, I mean, he played for Barcelona. He played for Manchester United. He had a, he had a, a few, a few more clubs in the top tier in Spain and La Liga. Uh, I mean, Apart from the last name, apart from the last name Cruyff, which he never wore on his on the back of his jersey, by the way, uh, he was a La Masia graduate who had a f- more than a few years of professional football, and uh, and now in his post football playing career, he's known to be a very good administrator of the game. Yeah, currently in China doing that role, and you know they it seems like every time there are rumors about one of the front office personnel of Barcelona leaving he's always a name that is linked with coming back to the club in that kind of position uh, and I think a few years down the line I expect him to return to the club in some kind of role and again he does have a well not to say an, he's, it's not an official ambassador role but he does have a a very good back and forth with the current administration as well so next up on the list 1997 to 2004 Michael Reisiger coming from AC Milan leaving for Middlesbrough um, and I, I think if for all the time he spent other clubs even, he should be most remembered as a player for Barcelona, which is where he made his most appearances. Uh, and he, again, was always just a really good servant, and it's, it's difficult in today's 
day and age to to find a a a, a proper comparison to him. But I always would have compared him, in a sense, to Adriano, as in his role on the team of what he fit. But as a player, he profiled a little more actually like Abidal. Yeah, the the comparison I was about to make is not a very popular one, but I was going to say that he reminds me a lot of Nacho from Real Madrid, actually. Mm. He was a dependable sub, very underrated, by the way, uh, for whatever reason. But he was a dependable sub. He he did the work. He he never complained. He never you never heard anything controversial about him. He was never quite good enough or convincing enough to be an undisputed starter but whenever we would need him to start an important game he did the work be it as a right back or as a central defender yeah so again i know adriano played and as abidal they played on the left side um but his versatility that's what he again what he brought that was the point with adriano as well um just a versatile player that was you know capable of just filling in in a time and again we're getting into that time with players the Dutch players, there's a whole list of them we're about to get to. Uh, they came to the club when the club wasn't winning, and it really is a low point for the club in the last about 25 years. And that's when, you know, the largest majority of the next six, seven names on our list are coming to the club. So unfortunately, they wind up not doing a lot of winning. The next guy on our list is a guy that, again, didn't necessarily do much winning at all, had 100 league appearances exactly, and only played one position, and that was in goalkeeper, 1997 to 2000, Rude Hesp, coming from Rota in the Netherlands, leaving again to go back home to Fortuna Sittard, and 100 league appearances exactly for the goalkeeper, as I said. Signed, for, signed by Louis Van Hall, who was the manager at the time, started 73 of 76 possible La Liga matches over Vitor Baia, two La Liga titles, so he did a little winning, before, again, the, the club kind of fell into a slip. But uh, unfortunately for Hesp, at the national level, he overlapped with uh, a young man named Edward Vendersar. So his Netherlands appearances were hard to come by, even though he did go to the Euro 96 and the 1998 FIFA World Cup. He just didn't find a way to break into the national team because, again, he's right behind Vendersar. But for Barcelona, again, he came for two seasons. He did his job pretty well. Uh, and then he packed up and went back to the Netherlands. Uh, and so Van Hall... Again, a Dutch manager at the time, brings in a Dutch goalkeeper, and he finds his way. I think, again, another guy that isn't a footnote. He was a start- starting goalkeeper for two seasons uh, and started, again, 73 of 76, so very durable as well. Yeah, very durable, but history proved that Vitor Baia was the better goalkeeper of the two and True. was probably the one that should have been kept after all. Right. Yeah, certainly. I mean, again, he's the guy that moves in uh, to a starting spot. And Hesp, again, I think almost as a favor to Van Hall. And that winds up being what we're noticing, one of the themes here, that whether it was Jordi Cruyff or um, earlier in the show when, again, we had just spoken about coming to the club, was Richard Wichka. And, you know, there have been some, not to say favors, but guys who didn't necessarily, you know, shine themselves in glory uh, before and after coming to the club. But, again, I think Hesp's time at Barcelona was an unmitigated success. Uh, and so that takes us to our next gentleman, Winston Bogarde from 1997 to 2000, coming from AC Milan and leaving for Chelsea and getting a pretty good fee from Chelsea as well. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so much was expected from that uh, from that transfer. And he ended up disappointed, disappointing, not really because of his performances on the field, but because of his injuries. And uh, we never quite got what we expected from him because of that yeah I, I don't want to waste too much time 
here on him because, again, his Barcelona career itself was riddled with some injuries, but he winds up, again, being another one of those footnotes coming from a major club and leaving for another top club. Now, the next guy on the list is, uh, it, it's not a two-parter. This is the better of the DeBoer twins. We actually have, I know we're going chronologically up to this point, but we actually have a little bit of break in the uh, chronological order of this from 1999. So we're going to have guys coming from nine, uh, coming in 98 after this, but we're going to, again, break up the twins. First, it's Frank DeBoer, the, uh, you know, unfortunately, who's going to be remembered as the more talented player for Barcelona in Frank DeBoer, current manager of Atlanta United as well, after some unsuccessful stints uh, in England with Crystal Palace. Um, come, comes in from Ajax, and uh, he also was a manager of Ajax from 2010 to 2014, where he won four straight Eredivisie titles. But as a player, not too shabby as well. The defender, who again came from Ajax, left for Galatasaray after uh, his four seasons at the club or five seasons rather, won the Liga title though in 98-99. So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how the club kind of goes into their lack of titles, dark period, and DeBoer is a, a main figure in that time. He comes off Ajax fame, five Eredivisie titles, two KNVB Cups, which is obviously the, the we'll say the cup in, in the Netherlands, one Champions League with Ajax, one UEFA Cup, and one UEFA Super Cup. So he does win uh, a lot with Ajax and comes to Barcelona. He can't repeat that success, but I'd say he was a pretty darn good player for Barcelona when he was there. Exactly, and he was one of the most uh, famous winter transfers, if you uh, if you remember. Uh, Barcelona didn't have that many uh, up until very recently, and uh, he came in with his twin brother because of a dispute with uh, the board at Ajax, and they had one very good season of 1998-1999 and after that nothing until the arrival of another Dutchman as uh, as manager Frank Rijkaard but it's his legacy at Barcelona doesn't really quite represent the player that he was in his career as a whole be it for club or country but like you said, he was part of that unfortunate Barcelona generation that didn't win much or anything at all, really. Yeah, so actually, let's go back in time to 1998 uh, for our next guy, Mike. Yes, uh, Baldwin Zenden, commonly known as Bodo, um, was a career left winger, but uh, for Barcelona, he had to, to be deployed as a, a left back. And uh, he he succeeded very well, challenging himself at that position. And uh, he was with Barcelona from 1998 to 2001. So he was able to win La Liga in the 1998-1999 season. And uh, the player who actually took his spot as, uh, as left winger was another player that we're going to talk about a little bit later. <laughs> another Dutchman, actually. Uh, he had a lot of success with the Dutch national team. For Barcelona, I would say that his his success was moderate, but he he did the job that he was asked to do. Yeah, I made 64 total appearances. He started his career with them coming off the bench, winds up scoring just three official goals, uh, excuse me, two official goals and three assists. But as you mentioned, he had to be versatile, played on the left wing primarily, but could also be deployed as a, a wing back as well and you know again another one of those servants that comes in and it did this when i was researching him it did get me thinking mike about how we profile or what the profile of a dutch player is 
And, it, you know, it does get you thinking when we've done these other shows, right? What is a French player? What does that represent? And, and what, did, what did a Hungarian player from back in the day? Or a really, you know, what is a Eastern European or what is expected of an Eastern European player? But it gets me thinking, what are the expectations of a Dutch player? And I think the next guy on the list, Philip Koku, 1998 to 2004, he embodies, I think, what we expect from the modern Dutch player. I mean, and I know Robin and I know Schneider, you know, that being Wesley Schneider and, and Arjen Robin and even Robin Van Persie. I know those are the big names that we've thought about since the new millennium um, uh, of being the guys. And Ruud van Nistelrooy, again, is probably the most famous of all of them. What quantifies being a Dutch player? And it's for a club that for a league, rather, that is seen as soft and is seen as obviously young because it's a selling league. So you get a lot of teenagers playing week to week. So it winds up being if you don't want a, a physical competition as much and it's more of a technical league where you can protect your youngsters on loan, you send them to the Eredivisie. But yet so many of the top, top players that come out definitely have something. They have a bite. They have a guile. And that's what what uh, Koku was. He was consistent. He could be trusted to play. He made more appearances for Barcelona than anybody else on this list. 291 official appearances, 37 goals in six seasons, came from PSV, left for PSV. Uh, again, from 98 to 2004, he was in the midfield of Barcelona, wore the captain's armband um, between his two stints at PSV. 39 appearances uh, in a season was his low at Barcelona. That's how dependable he was. Played over 50 games in a season, more than three times. A playmaking midfielder who could do everything. And this, again, does go back to that idea, Mike, that, again, I, 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 I've waited till halfway through the show to kind of bring this up, uh, of, of, of Koku being a guy who represented total football years after total football. He was a defender, a wingback, a winger, a forward, but it was mainly in the midfield where he's shown in a trio that included Luis Figo and Pep Guardiola. In his first season, they won the Liga title. He scores 12 goals and 36 league appearances that season. Then when Guardiola leaves in 2001, obviously Figo left as well. Let's not talk about that. Koku was paired with Xavi and Gabri, and that midfield just kept on working and until it was basically time to hand the reins over of that midfield to Xavi and Deco and the rest. Uh, but again, he was so consistent unfortunately only won won the Liga title in 98-99 his only title at Barcelona which again is a shame for a guy that I think you know looking back at it winds up being a really important figure in the in the club's transition and I think I'll say the club's ability to while they didn't win titles to still stay as a relevant club and not to fall too far down in ways that I think even in recent years we've seen AC Milan does that make sense? How AC Milan kind of has taken that huge step back and they've not broken back into the top, top tier. But I think Koku kind of held firm. And as as one of those main leaders on those teams that struggled, he didn't allow Barcelona to, to go under. Yeah, so much, so great with his service to FC Barcelona that upon his departure, he was actually honored by then-president Joan Laporta. And it's not something that you see happening a lot. But despite the fact that he was not uh, part of a title-ridden generation, he he was still honored by the club upon his departure. Yeah, and I think he should be, again, remembered fondly from a time that won't be remembered so fondly. And speaking of not being remembered fondly, the next guy on our list is part two of that DeBoer twin set. That's Ronald. And you had mentioned he comes over 
with Frank after disagreements with the IX board coming from IX, leaving for Rangers in Scotland. And unfortunately, not only is he going to be not remembered for his season at Barcelona, but he, I think, unfortunately, he's remembered for missing that penalty in the shootout during the 1998 World Cup semifinals that knocks the Netherlands out. Um, so, again, a little bit tragic with Ronald De Boer because not only was he, again, not at the level of his brother, but particularly at Barcelona, he just didn't stand out. Exactly. I mean, only only one league goal in 37 league games, and he was supposed to be uh, uh, an attacking midf- midfielder slash forward, but the, the 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 production just didn't come. He, I, I hate to put it this way, but if he hadn't been the twin of Frank de Boer, I don't think he would have ever come to Barcelona at, at all. Yeah, I mean, he was a better player for Ajax. And that has been proven over time that while he wasn't able, you wonder why he wasn't able to get things going at Barcelona. Because again, for Ajax, he had almost 300 appearances throughout his time there, 69 goals, 33 assists. It was much more impactful there. And again, as you talked about in La Liga, just 33 appearances, one goal, two assists. I think there were expectations that were higher. And because of just how consistent and how important Frank was, Ronald was put with the same responsibilities and onus on him. But yet, again, Ronald had the responsibility of scoring goals in a way that Frank didn't. And so that really does, you know, if, if a striker or an attacking player comes to your club and doesn't score goals and doesn't contribute assists, then his time at the club was a failure. So it's a little more easy to quantify that, especially in a time that uh, when, again, Barcelona just... They weren't at the best. They weren't. That was their their the hill and the valley. That was the valley of their success at the time. Next up on the list, Patrick Cloyvert, 1998 to 2004, longtime Ajax player who comes from AC Milan, leaves for Newcastle, but not before he makes 308 appearances for the club, which is third on this list behind uh, Koku and Komen. 145 goals. A guy that just could not stop scoring goals when at a time when again it was uh, a young Xavi. You have Koku in the midfield. As well, it was either Gabri behind him or Luis Figo for just a hot second there, along with Pep Guardiola, all get providing uh, some assists and helping him out there. Won the Liga title 98-99 to Copa's Catalunya. So for a guy who did so much scoring, had so much success at the club, and, and is arguably one of the best strikers and forwards that the club had ever seen, he winds up not doing a lot of winning. A lot of individual success, as I, as I mentioned, and not necessarily all his fault either. You could argue that he was actually a creative midfielder because of his ability to play with his back to goal, and his finishing made him a fantastic striker for the club and for Ajax as well. Again, with his ability to drop deep, linking up with teammates, that might have suited more almost as a number 10, but he played that number 9 role, um, and all of those skills were just some of the things that led to him becoming one of the most prolific goal scorers in Barcelona history. So fortunately, he's remembered as being a terrific goal scorer and not for a player that wasn't able to lead that club to success and titles during that time. Exactly, and that's very unfortunate because he, the, the connection between him and Ronaldo was actually was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. But something didn't quite gel, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's maybe it's the the coaching that wasn't quite there because of all the talent that we saw on that team, we should have been able to see more uh, more titles, or maybe the competition was just too fierce in La Liga. We're talking about a time where. Valencia was red hot when uh, Deportivo La Coruña was red hot as well. Real Madrid managed to win a few European titles as well during that period. 
but uh, when you see uh, Patrick Loivert's stats, you can't really imagine him doing much better than what he actually did, but unfortunately the results didn't come with the stats. Nope, uh, and I think he's another guy that's still remembered as a legend at the club, and the, the name Cloyver is going to come up again later in the show, uh, but even now, he again, another guy that has a good relationship with the club, and for all the turmoil between Cruyff and certain presidents, and we're not going to get into the politics of that now, but a lot of these guys on this list as well still have a good working relationship with the club, and I, they seem to advise Dutch players uh, and letting them know that Barcelona is an ideal, and it, it's a dream club, and so he even tells... His, his son, Justin, as you and I were just talking about off air, that he tells his, his son, Justin, to go to Roma first. And his son, Justin, has said that he dreams, the, the winger, a, a young winger, still a teenager, says that he dreams of being at Barcelona one day uh, after being groomed in the Ajax system as well. And, and for, you know, Kluivert was, uh, I think, a player that Barcelona got at a reasonable cost. Uh, coming from AC Milan, again, it, it costs a lot because that was a good time for AC Milan, but he winds up backing up his transfer price. Unfortunately for Mark Overmars from 2000 to 2004, I don't know if he winds up backing up his price tag, which at the time was Barcelona's most expensive transfer ever when he comes from Arsenal. Arsenal, and uh, especially Arsene Wenger, has that very rare ability to sell players at the right time. Yeah. And they did that with us so many times over the course of history. Just sell high and and then we get caught up paying absolutely crazy uh, amounts in the in the transfer market and in the end at the end of the day we don't get much out of these players and Marco Vermars unfortunately when he came over to Barcelona was there there was such a big hype associated with him and we expected so much from him and he ended up being uh, nothing short of a bust yeah and you could tell that in quality as well he obviously takes that career break comes back in 2008 with go ahead eagles but for a guy that was seen both at his time with ajax and then at arsenal he was seen as one of the the, just the top attackers in the world playing on that left wing primarily could also play as an attacking midfielder but for Barcelona playing at that left wing and now he does almost make 100 appearances for the club uh, official appearances so he makes over 100 appearances total uh, official goals uh, in the league at least were 15 14 assists he had a few more goals and assists outside of La Liga but he, I, again he didn't I wouldn't I don't know how to say it he and I guess this is vibes of the Coutinho feel right now, right? The Coutinho, who's now our most expensive transfer ever, it's the same feeling where you watch him and he's a great player. And again, maybe if you listen to this, you listen to this a year or two down the road, maybe Coutinho's won a Ballon d'Or by this point. We know that he's good. We know he has quality. But at the moment that we're recording this, you know, Coutinho, most expensive transfer ever, plays or is playing on that left wing, probably should be more comfortable than attacking midfielder. Sound like anyone that we're talking about, Mark Overmars? You know, I, I do see a lot of parallels there just because, again, Barcelona, whether it's system or whether it's the pressure, they wind up just not getting the best out of those two. Now, again, Coutinho still has a long way to go. For Overmars, because of how physical he was as well, he wasn't necessarily just this technical player the way that Coutinho is. Overmars was a much more physical player, much more one-on-one guy um, playing out on those wings. So I just I, I wonder what it would have taken to get the best out of him. Well, to be fair, Mark Overmars had persistent knee issues uh, throughout his career, especially to, towards the end. Which and is why no he takes, which why he takes off, the break, yeah. 
and no matter how much time off he would take, not only after he retired, but even uh, in, during his seasons with Barcelona, he could just he couldn't shake these these knee issues, and that really took a toll on his uh, on his ability to exploit the. The, the maximum his maximum potential and uh, unfortunately that's one of the main reasons why we didn't get what we thought we could get out of that player and hopefully Philippe Coutinho will not have the same uh, fitness issues that Overmars had to suffer during his career well we do go from one of the again more uh, how do I say it contentious transfers uh, of this Dutch player special to probably one of the better ones in Edgar Davids from 2003 to 2004. Davids comes from Juventus, leaves for Juventus. Obviously, that's because he came in January on loan to help add some steel to the midfield, help the team go from mid-table all the way up to second behind Valencia. And as you had mentioned earlier in the show, Mike, Valencia, that was a time when they were flying high, as were Deportivo La Coruña. And the one question I have for you, Mike, again, he was only there for six months so if you can answer this question we'll move on to the next guy right away how much credit do we give him for sparking something special at barcelona because as we know uh you know they come out of that period of not winning they get second to valencia and then basically the next year they start winning trophies again oh the amount of credit that he deserves for that comeback is tremendous no question about it and you you notice uh, dan that whenever uh, a player that has a strong character, uh, a warrior-type spirit, a, fi- uh, a fighting spirit. We always refer to him. When, when we signed Paulinho, when we signed Arturo Vidal, when we signed even Prince Boateng, there were always comparisons with uh, Edgar Davids because he's the blueprint yeah. uh, when it comes to that type of player. Yeah, only plays 18 matches uh, for Barcelona that year with one goal, one assist. And yet the impact he has at two appearances in the Copa del Rey, shouldn't forget those as well. But with those 20 total appearances for Barcelona, again, it doesn't seem like much. It's a small sample size, but he did exactly what he was needed to, to do. And so it's the same feeling when you get a guy like Kevin Prince-Boateng in January. You go, well, if this guy can just do what he needs to do, be a backup to Suarez, maybe banging a few goals if necessary then the club will be much better for it. And that's all he's expected to do. Uh, Davies also a notable, really, really good locker room guy. Uh, and he was, for good reason, a really big piece of the Juventus teams that had a lot of success as well in the uh, last decade. And he was a guy, again, that was groomed and uh, goes from Ajax to AC Milan. And for as slow as it was that his career kind of ends, because it does, it, he tries to go back to Ajax, and this is after Barcelona, Juventus, Inter, Spurs, Ajax, then he takes a little bit of a break. We're talking Crystal Palace and Barnett. And while, you know, his, it's like a lot of uh, legends of, of the game, especially midfielders whose bodies do, I, I guess, fall apart a little quicker just because of the, for a guy that added so much metal and steel and played with such physicality, his body did kind of break down on him as well. And so he, I guess he wasn't able to live out the remainder of his footballing career uh, with high success. But again, a guy that should be remembered as a legend of the game. Again, his international success with the Netherlands as well. Uh, so Barcelona didn't have him for long, but he winds up being a guy that we're talking about as long as anybody else on this list because of what he meant to the club. And again, his personality is almost a, a good juxtaposition for the next two guys on our list. Uh, and I don't want to, I'm not putting them together, but the next two on the list are Giovanni uh, Van Bronckhorst and Mark Van Bommel. 
First, let's talk about Giovanni Van Bronckhorst from 2003 to 2007. Comes from Arsenal, leaves for Arsenal. And I think Van Bommel was much more of a personality, if you will. But Van Bronckhorst, he had a bite and he had a guile about him as well. And he was a guy who could do a job. Yeah, and he was... He was really he was deeply loved by Barcelona supporters in Catalonia. That's for sure. They adopted him as one of their own. Yeah. And uh, like you said, he was gritty. He was uh, he was fierce, and he was very dependable. And very much like other players who are part of that list, he could be used on so many different roles. And he was always reliable. He played as a he played as a midfielder. He played as a left back. And he, he was always dependable. And he was one of those... Uh, he was a very important piece of the 2006 uh, European title. And he actually was the only Barcelona player of that squad who featured on every single UEFA Champions League match during that season. Yeah, he came on loan in 2003. And then in 04 he winds up... Uh, being uh, leaving for Barcelona, if you will, from on a free transfer before he heads over to Feyenoord uh, to finish out his career. But uh, as you mentioned, I mean, just a stalwart who could play anywhere. But we are going to remember him as a as a left back who could deliver a pretty good cross in, and that was probably technically uh, his best attribute. And uh, again, a really really successful player for Barcelona that again wound up being one of those guys that you think of as that transition nary period before we get the likes of Iniesta becoming really a global superstar. And obviously uh, the end of his time with Barcelona coincides with a rise of a young man named Lionel Messi uh, the following season. And Van Bronckhorst wound up being, again, one of those old leaders that, as I kind of credited Koku with earlier, somebody who didn't allow the club to stagnate or fall below uh, the line that they were at. You know, it didn't let them become a mid-table team or didn't let them become a, a, a less than team. They, he put them in a, a position where once they had that next generation, they were ready to really, really go to the next level. Um, and I, I, then I think Van Bronckhorst did that pretty well. And now the next guy on the list, Mark Van Bommel, 2005 to 06, so not too long, came from PSV where he was a star, where he had four Air Divisie titles as PSV dominated in the early part of the new century. He was a complimentary midfield option, though, alongside, again, Xavi, Iniesta, Deco, Tagomata, uh, Edmilson, a lot of competitions, uh, competition in the midfield. And he's probably, again, most remembered for his time at PSV, but he also had an even more successful career at Bayern Munich. But, again, another guy that is endeared to Barcelona fans because he was a tackling ball winner, powerful shot, and he won the 2006 Champions League with Barcelona, won La Liga title, two championship Super Cups. But, again, he was part of that team that, that recaptured the, the the best the top trophy in Europe and so that's why again he's a guy that's always going to be endeared to Barcelona fans for that reason exactly only one season but so many great memories and uh, perhaps uh, perhaps one of the most uh, underrated uh, players that we that we had seen in that generation in that Frank Rijkaard generation for sure but I, I think unfortunately his time uh, with the club there's a little bit of a it's it's odd that fans of Barcelona, it depends on where you stand again nationally, that because Barcelona is such a, an international global brand, you know, obviously here I am in the U.S. and uh, I, obviously you're not in Spain, you're in Canada at the moment, Mike, and Van Bommel, because of his tackle on a Real Madrid player in in Xabi Alonso at the 2010 World Cup, 
when again for a team that was made up primarily a Barcelona fan I mean a uh, primarily Barcelona players and Iniesta is the one who winds up getting the winner and it did feel like that Barcelona's project winds up culminating in that World Cup the idea that Van Bommel with his studs uh, uh, I'm actually misremembering this it was De Young, but Van Bommel maybe you can help me out with this one Mike Van Bommel had a pretty nasty tackle in that final as well and it wasn't yes it wasn't the flying kick that De Young had on Alonso but it was another one I don't remember exactly who was on but Van Bommel was a little bit of a villain in that final where the Netherlands in 2010 had some pretty nasty tactics and you saw what their idea was to just kind of chop that 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 passing uh, the beautiful passing of Spain and try to win it that way and that I mean that's just it's, a, it's the style that suited Van Bommel but he, want, he kind of predated what then Barcelona and the Spanish national team became. And they became, again, this pass and move, just visually pleasing guys that Van Bommel no longer fit in afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you're, mentioning, you're mentioning the 2010 uh, Dutch national team. They, 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 they had a... The thing about the Dutch national team historically, not just in 2010, is that they always had, they held, they always had a chip on their shoulder because they always had... Up until very recently, great generations who were expected to win uh, every single competition they, yeah. they, they, they were a part of, and there were a sense there was really a sense in 2010 that it was their time to do it, and they were going to get it no matter what. And history showed that the Spanish squad was was superior after all, but I, I can understand why Van Bommel would. Uh, w- would have used these tactics, these tactics during that game. Although he didn't, de- he didn't do it in an unsportsmanlike way, uh, the, the, the same as uh, his teammate of the time, Nigel De Young. That, that that went that transcended sports. That was that was more than nasty. That was yeah. That was criminal. I would say. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I, I think. Yeah, I, I think I think it's unfortunate memories. Uh, but Van Bommel's time at Barcelona. Again, it was a lot of winning was done in that one season, uh, and it was a pretty good time for the club where it again began ushering in the new era. And he was along with Brank, uh, Van Bronckhorst, uh, part of that. Um, and now a guy who played during some of the best years of Barcelona, but is not remembered as really being a vocal a, a focal point of those teams was Ibrahim Afale from 2010 to 2012. Came from PSV, left for Schalke, and those are just the permanent moves uh he was a guy that he went out on loan a bunch of time and he's still with stoke city but as what's come out later in his career he's over the age of 30 now he came in as a a hybrid attacking midfielder winger uh, a lot of expectations for him and he had a lot of injuries at barcelona but now even when he's been healthy it seems like a lot of teams are saying it's including stoke city saying that he really is just a, a cancer on the locker room and you know his public public opinion of him has changed and and you know, and, and degraded uh, quite some, uh, qu- quite a bit over time. And so Afili, again, a guy that is not going to be remembered, I think, in the annals of Barcelona history. And again, he's one of those two or three guys that doesn't seem to fit on the rest of this list. Yeah, exactly. And at the time of recording this uh, episode, he's actually unattached. Stoke right. City yep. decided to part ways with him. Um, he's 32 years old at the time, but back when Barcelona signed him, he's, he was only 24 with so much promise, and he was a permanent... Uh, feature on the Dutch national squad. Um, we saw flashes of brilliance from him, especially that wonderful assist to Lionel Messi on that uh, 2-0 victory against Real Madrid on the 
2011 UEFA Champions League semifinal. Yep. And uh, unfortunately, what happened with Afila is that he was riddled with injuries, and he he once had to sit out for seven months. And when he came back, Pep Guardiola was already gone, and Tito Villanova uh, deemed him as surplus to requirements, and uh, he had no choice but to accept a loan deal from from Schalke. Now. <laughs> Bouncing from one loan to another and one injury to another, Barcelona had to part ways with him, and he was never the same player again. Yep. So I think we're not going to waste any more time on Afale. We're almost there, Mike. Again, thanks for you for continuing to stick with us on this. The last guy is a present Barcelona player, and that is Jasper Sillison. Came from Ajax in 2016, a La Liga. And this, again, at time of recording, one La Liga trophy, two Copa del Reyes, one Supercopa in 2018. Third place at the 2014 World Cup. He's made 27 appearances. Now make that 28. Again, this is being recorded the day that Barcelona came back against Sevilla. So 28 appearances in three seasons. And again, Jasper Sillison, I can't sing his praise enough. And we're not going to waste too much time because he's a current player. So we do talk about them on the regular show. But uh, he has been just a, a fantastic signing for Barcelona coming from Ajax. Again, already in his mid to late 20s. And he is just such a good sh- shot stopper. And he does fit the profile of what a Dutch goalkeeper does. And that's a guy that just, its he's good enough technically with his feet. Again, he's not Ter Stegen level, but he's good enough with his feet. And he is a Dutch shot stopper. That's what he does. And he is again, he is fantastic every time he's appeared in the Copa del Rey. He's been great for the locker room. He's been such a humble teammate. Uh, and you almost, when the Netherlands are playing, depending on who they're playing, it's, you almost have to root for the Netherlands simply because you want Sillison to win as much as he can. And you just love seeing that guy on the field. Uh, it's just an, an A-plus guy is Jasper Sillison. The smiling assassin Jasper Sillison. He's got a great personality too. He seems to really enjoy playing football. Um, when you see him, you think that you're seeing a, a kid playing in the park with his buddies. <laughs> he doesn't yeah. seem stressed or nervous at all, and he comes up with the with fantastic saves. Just you know, you were referring to La Remontada uh, against uh, against Sevilla. Uh, a, a solid part of it was thanks to him. And uh, no matter how few matches that he's being used for. He always seems to be game ready, and that's that's the most important thing about a a backup goalkeeper at such mm-hmm. a big club. And we remember when Victor Valdez was injured, and we had to rely on on Pinto. <laughs> that's uh, that that anomaly was quickly fixed when we had Ter Stegen and Claudio Bravo for for two years, and now Ter Stegen and Jasper Sillison. Yep. Uh, and then, so next on that list uh, is going to be Frankie De Young. In 2019, you're gonna we're gonna talk so much about him, uh, Mike. And we also had a prof- we profiled him uh, on a show very, uh, very recently. Again, you can check the archives coming out in the middle of January. That show did. So that's all about Frankie De Young. Um, and as we wrap this one up, though, we got a few add-ons to mention here as we're nearing the hour mark. When Barcelona brought in. Johan Cruyff, as we started this show a long time ago, it felt like, Mike, when they brought in Johan Cruyff, he was at the top of his game and a Ballon d'Or winner. And that is not the only Dutch player that they have gotten at the top of her game uh, when she 
wound up winning the best in the world, and that was Lecky Martins, who currently plays for Barcelona Femini. Uh, she has to be remembered on this list as well. And her teammate and defender, Stephanie van der Graat, for Barcelona Femini. So this the connection between the Netherlands and Barcelona does not stop with the men, and it also doesn't stop at the first division, uh, the first team, rather, because Xavi Simons obviously is one of the most popular La Masia names, and I haven't profiled him yet in La Masia uh, profiles. Again, depending on when you have this in your ears, we might get to that, uh, but he, again, is one of the most talked-about players, and Shane Kloivert is obviously son of Patrick Kloivert, and he plays way down in the youth system as well, just basically becoming a teenager, uh, or not even a teenager at time of recording. He'll be a teenager soon enough. And then Rhinus Mikels, Frank Reichardt, Louis Van Hall, those are managers that are of uh, Dutch origin who we've kind of referenced and talked about on the show as well. And, and Mike, kind of wrapping all this up, uh, as I named those three managers as well, as I've we've talked about all these different players, the question I have to ask you, and this is one that, you know, <laughs> it's not hard to, it's not, it's not hard, but it's not easy to answer. What is, what does a Dutch player look like? And, and what does a Dutch manager look like and what kind of ideas are there and i think it starts with total football but where do we go from there a dutch manager has to be strict and he has to be uh, a teacher of tactics and he has to get the best out of his players and we we see one thing in common between rinus michels jan cruyff and louis van hal is that they were all strong characters they all had strong personalities and a Dutch manager also has to impose respect upon his squad. A Dutch player has to be complete, and he has to be able to be to 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 play at whatever role that is asked of him. He has to be uh, physically fit, and he has to be intelligent on the pitch. Um, and a lot of those players that we just mentioned, uh, you and I, Dan, have that ability to. To, to to be used in a number of different roles. You mentioned yeah. uh, you mentioned how Patrick Kluivert, uh, even as a striker, was reminiscent of an attacking midfielder. We mentioned Koeman, obviously, Koku. Uh, all of these players have, have that ability to fill whatever role that is asked of him for the good of the team. And that's one of the main uh, principles of total football. Sacrifice yourself for the good of the team. Yep. And uh, we really appreciate you listeners sacrificing your time to listen to us. And this is, again, a special that we were really have been excited with since we've done the French one and the Hungarian one. There are more in the future. But again, because of the signing of Frank and Young this January, he'll be coming to the club in June. We figured it was a great time. Uh, the one name we haven't mentioned at all is Matthias Delict, because, again, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, we might even add a little add-on at the end uh, in the future if Delict winds up being a Barcelona. But with now, the perfect number was 20. There's going to be 20 players playing for Barcelona's first team. Uh, again, there have been plenty of managers, La Masia talents, as well as Femini uh, coming from the Netherlands. They've given Barcelona certainly a ton in the last five decades. And uh, again, it's been a, a wonderful time, again, Mike, to, to be able to talk about uh, what one particular country or region has provided Barcelona. And we'll have, again, more of these in the future. But until then, Mike, uh, when you're not on as a regular guest on the Barcelona podcast, where else can people find you? People can find me on Le Blaugrana podcast, the only French language FC Barcelona podcast out there. And the Twitter handle is at Blaugrana pod. 
And uh, we're available on Spreaker, uh, Spreaker, iTunes, and wherever else you can find your favorite podcasts. And to find my personal uh, Twitter account, it's simple. It's at MikeMillerFC. And on my personal Twitter account, I tweet mostly in English. Well, thanks so much for you, the listeners, for tuning in again. You can tap in your app and check out the show notes to subscribe to us and also find, again, what Mike's talking about, clicking on him on Twitter and finding all the goodies he just mentioned. You can find us on social media, too. We're on Twitter, at the Barcelona Pod, or at HiltonD13 for me, and on Instagram, at the Barcelona Pod. Our closed Facebook group is tbpod.link backslash group for deeper dives and the discussions, the listener questions we have on our regular shows. And you can help us out on Patreon as well to continue making these shows at tbpod.link backslash Patreon. But thanks so much for tuning in to the Barcelona Podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon on Forza Barca. Forza. Ready for the coziest Christmas ever? Get to Old Navy for up to 60% off everything. That's right. The entire store is on sale, including mix and match, jingle jammies, and festive prints for the whole family from $8, and adult sweaters from $12. But hurry, like the holidays, this deal won't last. Get up to 60% off the entire store today at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1211 to 1217 excludes clearance, gift cards today only, two-day only deals, register lane items, jewelry, gift of the week, and zip zap stuff gifting bins. They call you the grill master. You've seared the thickest porterhouse in the butcher shop. And as you lift that first forkful to your mouth, you savor the moment. To get amazing offers during the Mercedes-Benz summer event, like the 2019 C-Class sedan and GLC SUV, the perfect recipes of driving performance. Plus, you can enjoy six months of Sirius XM All Access included. The Mercedes-Benz summer event, now serving limited time offers on a select lineup of vehicles. Offers end September 3rd. Mercedes-Benz, the best or nothing. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.